Let's stand together as we read our gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, the 14th chapter beginning at the 15th verse. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will, be, that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. As we turn to the preaching of the word of God, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and overrule and overwhelm. My mouth and my words are ears and are hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is in accordance to the word of God, and for the good of God's people, and for the glory of Jesus. On this day of Pentecost, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. And as the word is proclaimed, you would do your work, burn in our hearts, that we would grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus, be transformed more and more into his image, and know the very presence of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. You probably have some uh, cues that today is an unusual day, an outside-of-the-ordinary day, as we gathered for worship this morning. Here at our 10 o'clock service, uh, one of those cues that today is not normal is the fact that I'm wearing a robe, a vestment, and it's incredibly hot under this particular collar. We do that because today is a high 
holy day. And as we're going to see here in just a few moments, the day of Pentecost, the celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church, is incredibly important for the life of the church. And so we mark it out in our dress as just not another normal Sunday. We also are burning the incense as you smell the wonderful aroma. Am I right? It's a wonderful aroma. Some of you are not so sure that it's a wonderful aroma. I promise you, if it smelled like bacon and smoked meat, none of you would complain. <laughs> but we burn incense. It's traditional. It's a historical, traditional thing within worship to burn incense. It's rooted in the Old Testament to burn incense. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation. And so we do it again to mark out today as a special day, different than any other. Today is the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. After his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. And there at the right hand of God the Father, the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus intercedes on our behalf, and he sent out the Holy Spirit. As a result of his accomplished work, as a result of his glorification into heaven, in fulfillment of promises from God in the Old Testament and from his own mouth that he made to his disciples in the New, the Holy Spirit was sent by the Son through the Father to all who believed in Jesus. And we celebrate the day of Pentecost. It's a special day, a high holy day, because Pentecost is the reason, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the reason why the church exists. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the reason why Pentecost is remembered by the church, and it is the event that causes the existence of the church in the first place. You see, as missionary and bishop Leslie Newbigin once said, the church lives neither by her faithfulness to her message nor by her abiding in one fellowship with the apostles. No, the church lives by the power of the Spirit of God. And so this isn't just business as usual, as if there is such a thing when it comes to interacting with the holy triune God, the creator of all that is, the redeemer of the universe. Pentecost is an incredibly important event in the interaction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with His creation. The interactions that we might refer to, this story recording the interactions of God with history, God with creation, we might refer to it as salvation history. And Pentecost is a huge step in that storyline. Pentecost is first the public transition from the old covenant to the new, the new covenant found in Christ, the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah, showed us in Ezekiel chapter 36 and fulfilled in Jesus. Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who applies redemption as the means through which adoption into the life of the Trinity is realized. And Pentecost is incredibly important because while it is not a repeatable event, Pentecost is like the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. It happens one time in history, but like those three events, that which was accomplished in history is still available today for all who would believe. And like the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, Pentecost is necessary and the effects of Pentecost are necessary for us to believe 
in Jesus, for us to enter into the life of the Trinity, for us to be transformed. Today, we're going to look together specifically at Jesus' promises to his disciples found in our gospel reading from John chapter 14. And as we look at John chapter 14 together today, I'd like for us to draw attention to three fundamental ideas from this passage. The first idea that we need to see from John chapter 14 when it comes to the gift of the Holy Spirit is simple recognition that this is an expression of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united together in the work of salvation. The second, the second uh, sort of theme that we want to see from John chapter 14 is this idea of the Holy Spirit as another paraclete. I didn't say parakeet, I said paraclete. Paraclete is far less obnoxious than a parakeet. No? Gosh, that's a dad joke, huh? Yeah. It's okay, I am a dad. And then finally, the work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of individual believers and on behalf of the church as a whole in his role as teacher. This morning, we see this big idea. You'll find it printed in your bulletin. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in a united act of the Holy Trinity to continue the work of Jesus and make and teach believers. First, let's think about this idea of the Trinity. That is the first aspect of Pentecost and the, the first aspect of the gift of the Holy Spirit from John chapter 14. It's actually found there that the gift of the Holy Spirit is a united act of the Trinity. And yes, it's absolutely true. You can't find the phrase, the Trinity, in any part of Scripture. But from the very beginning to the very end, you see within the Scriptures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent, interacting with that which God has made. And that's no less true than what we see today. When Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to his disciples here in John chapter 14, he does so by connecting the gift to the Father through the Son. In John chapter 14, Jesus states, first in, this, first, first in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then he says again in chapter 14, verse 26, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now, I draw attention to this because it's important for us and for our understanding of the Trinity, the existence of God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see here in Jesus' own words the revealing of the entire, that the entirety of God is bound up in the work of salvation, bound up in the work of saving. The Holy Spirit is given, sent from the Father through the Son, to those who love and obey Jesus. I think that's what we're talking about here. Through the Son equals love and obey Jesus. And that's how one receives the Spirit. But what does it mean to love and obey Jesus? The work of the Trinity is Christocentric in nature. That is, it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, came at the will of the Father to work out the plans and the purposes of the Father and to reveal the Father. Jesus clearly tells his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen 
the Father. He goes on, he states that the Son was sent by the Father in order to work out salvation for all who would believe in him. And what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Simply this, to receive the Holy Spirit, one must go through Jesus. One must love and obey Jesus. One must be connected to the Son to receive the Spirit from the Father. You can't go around Jesus to get to the Father. You can't go around Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you ought not expect to. The reception of the Holy Spirit is itself Christocentric. Only those who love and obey Jesus receive the Spirit as a gift from the Father through the Son. Now, I know that it sounds a little bit like works righteousness. Jesus sort of setting up this contractual obligation. Hey, you render me this good. You, you give to me the service of love and obedience, and I'll give you back. I'll pay you back with the Holy Spirit. That's what it sounds like, right? That's not what it's saying. The reference to love and obey is not the establishment of conditions that must be met in order to receive the good. That's works righteousness thinking. That's not here. This is not the exchange of services and goods from God uh, to people. No, love and obey is the reference to what one author refers to as a set of essential relations to Jesus. Love and obey really encapsulates what it means to trust, to believe in, to follow after Jesus. It seems best to understand this phrase from the mouth of Jesus, love and obey, to be a reference to an active faith and trust, a love that leads to active obedience. Just a few weeks ago, Father Ethan preached about this. He said that we obey what we love. And obedience to Jesus is a natural result of loving Jesus. So those who are related to Jesus by grace through faith, they love and obey him, those are the ones the Father will send the Spirit. To those who are related to Christ by grace through faith, to those who are committed to Christ in love and obedience, Jesus intercedes. He asks for the gift of the Spirit, and the Father responds with the sending. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is the consequence, then, of faith, of loving trust in Jesus. It's not earned. It's given. And like all free gifts, it can only be received. So the Father sends the Son and sends the Spirit, and in the missional sending of both Son and Spirit, the Trinity is revealed as the co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, united for the work of salvation, accomplished and applied. Folks, this is a really big deal. This is one of the things, one of the fundamental foundational aspects that sets Christianity apart from any other world religion, any of them, is the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the creator of all that is, who oversees all that is, intercedes on our behalf by giving of himself. Muhammad's Allah does not do that. He doesn't give of himself. There's no free gifts in Buddhism or Judaism. In Christianity, Jesus is given, the Spirit is given, that we may have life in the Trinity. And perhaps this is something that, that we don't fully understand, absolutely. We begin to think about and talk about and contemplate the aspects of the Trinity, and we must recognize that our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite. 
But at the very least, we can be moved at some level by this divine truth. That the co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent God of the universe has descended and condescended on our behalf to deliver us from sin, from death, and from hell. And perhaps we can begin to, to reflect upon the fact that within the Holy Trinity, there is a perfection that lacks nothing, and yet God opens his life to us, and yet we sit passively with blank faces, unmoved. When we contemplate upon this truth of Scripture, this divine truth, we ought to break out into triune doxology. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a united act of the Holy Trinity. That should break us, and that should build us in truth. A second aspect of Pentecost to consider from John chapter 14 this morning is found in this curious phrase that Jesus uses in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another helper. You'll forgive me a very brief Greek lesson. We're reading from the English Standard Version. You may be looking at the New International Version or the New King James Version of the Bible. But this word helper in the English Standard Version, you'll see it rendered as advocate or counselor or comforter in other English translations. And each of these four English words capture a portion or something of the meaning of the Greek word, which is paraclete. But each lacks the fullness thereof. They really ought to be perhaps taken together to capture the wholeness of the meaning. The helper, the advocate, the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete. A paraclete was something of a lawyer who argued on someone's behalf. Something of a strengthener who came alongside another to help them get through. A consoler. Here in the New Testament... We have to take our cues of understanding of what it means for the Holy Spirit to be a paraclete by Jesus' use of the word another. You see, as Charles Spurgeon pointed out in a sermon from October 6, 1872, the Lord Jesus Christ is the first paraclete. The Holy Spirit is a second paraclete occupying the same position as the living Jesus. Now all that Jesus was, the Spirit of God, is to the church. The idea that the use of this, this word, helper, counselor, advocate, comforter, is only ever applied to one other person in all of Scripture, and that is Jesus. We'll actually hear it this morning as we hear the comfortable words pronounced to those of us who confess our sins. Jesus is called the advocate who is standing with the Father in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And so when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper, we need to understand that the Spirit does much of the same type of thing that Jesus did. We need to understand the unity between the Son and the Spirit in mission. In Scripture, if one is said to have the Spirit, then one has Christ in that relational way of love and obedience. If one is said to have Christ, then it is necessary that one is said to have the Spirit. 
Jesus is the first paraclete. He's the first advocate. He intercedes on our behalf with the Father. He is currently, as he told his disciples in John chapter 14, making a home for his people in the very presence of the Father. And the Spirit is the second paraclete, interceding for the believer with the believer and making a home for the Father and the Son. Where? In the believer. The Holy Spirit acts, paracletes, if I can make a verb out of it, like Jesus. Now, as a side note, let me just say this, because I think it's important for us to recognize this. As we consider the Holy Spirit to be the second helper, the second counselor, the second advocate, as we consider that the Holy Spirit does that which Jesus has done and continues to do, let's recognize that the Holy Spirit only operates in such a way that will bring glory to the Father and the Son, and He only operates in complete unity within the plans and purposes of God. I bring that up because I think it's important for us to recognize that if someone or some organization begins to talk about the Spirit proclaiming something new, and this new thing is contrary to that which the Spirit has already revealed and inscripturated, our spiritual antennae should begin to twitch. Because the Holy Spirit will not teach something contradictory to Scripture and the Holy Spirit, the second paraclete, will not operate in a way that glorifies someone or something other than Christ. So as the second paraclete, the work of the Holy Spirit is a direct consequence of the saving work of Christ, is the application of the saving work of Christ. And in this way, then, the work of the Holy Spirit, folks, it isn't something new. Rather, the work of the Holy Spirit, another helper, is the continuation and the extension of that which Jesus Christ began and finished through his death upon the cross, the resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. How is it that we in 2019 can merit any effect from or receive any effect from Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection? The application of the Holy Spirit. How is it that when we celebrate the Eucharist this morning, we will be in the presence of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit? How is it that when we baptize babies or we baptize other folks that we say that the, what do we say? We say the Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit extends the work of Jesus as the, another, as the second paraclete. He is Christocentric in his work, the united act of the Holy Trinity to continue the work of Jesus. Now, we're here to our third particular theme, if you're keeping track. For those of you who have lunch appointments, I promise we'll, we'll wrap up shortly. <laughs> We've seen thus far that Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon those who believe as a Trinitarian act in which the completed work of salvation is applied and the presence of God comes to bear upon the believer and upon the church. There's a bit more to be said about the Holy Spirit from John chapter 14. And that is, first has to do with the length of his stay and has to do with his role and his work. First, regarding the length of his stay, this is so important for us. Jesus is absolutely clear. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will never leave. In John chapter 14, at the very beginning of the chapter, at the very beginning of this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, by the way, am I the only one amused by the parenthetical statement by John? Judas, not Iscariot, parentheses. 
He, do you think he wore a little name tag like everywhere he went? Hi, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. No? I'm the only one? Okay. In this conversation, Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, guys, I'm leaving. You're going to see me now. You see me now. We're having dinner together. I've washed your feet. But in a little while, I'm going to be gone. And he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus' time with his disciples, his physical interaction with his, with his disciples was limited. But the Holy Spirit, Jesus says absolutely clearly, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll never leave. Jesus went away for the short time between his death and his resurrection. And then we know that Jesus went away by ascending to the Father. Jesus goes so far as to tell his disciples, it is good for you that I am leaving. It's good because when he leaves, he goes to intercede on our behalf. It's good because that is the culmination of the crucifixion resurrection. The ascension raises him to glory, the vindication of all that he's done. It's good that he goes away. That means salvation has been accomplished. But it's also good that he goes away because he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. The second paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will always be working, always paracleting with those who believe, always bringing one who believes into the presence of the Father and the Son, always going about the work he's been given to do. Forever's a long time. And the Holy Spirit is here forever. That work that he's going to do forever is centered upon Christ. It's bound up in the making and teaching of men and women to follow and who follow Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is focused on making disciples of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work is focused on teaching disciples of Jesus about Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is focused on witnessing to and for disciples regarding the truth of Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit is focused on the transformation of disciples into Jesus' own image. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Holy Spirit teaches what Jesus taught. The Holy Spirit proclaims what Jesus proclaimed. The Holy Spirit does what Jesus did. Jesus began his public ministry in Mark's gospel by preaching the coming of the kingdom of God and the need for repentance. And so we ought not be surprised that the first thing the Holy Spirit does within us is convict us of sin, call us to repentance, call us to faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. In fact, John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, in this same conversation, Jesus makes it quite plain. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin and thus arouses the need for Jesus within them, and the Holy Spirit teaches them about Jesus. What we're saying here is the simple biblical fact that without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the Spirit teaching us and witnessing to us, we cannot, will not believe in Jesus. John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. 
the first place the Spirit seems to begin in calling us to new birth is the conviction, the teaching and conviction of our sin and the need for repentance. If this afternoon you go home and you want to read what the rest of the day of Pentecost was like in Acts chapter 2, you'll find that after being accused of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, St. Peter says, no, we're not drunk. The Holy Spirit's here in fulfillment. And Peter goes on to preach the most eloquent sermon possible about Jesus on the day of Pentecost, probably the single most effective sermon as 3,000 people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior through his preaching. But it wasn't Peter's preaching that convicted them of their sin and called them to faith in Jesus. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, St. Paul states that no one can say Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so it is this work of the Holy Spirit to teach us, to convict us, to bring us into repentance. The first mark of what the Spirit is doing. And as the Spirit resides forever within the life of a believer, within those who love and obey Jesus, those receive the ongoing witnessing work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you guys, but there are moments in my life when I wonder if this is all true. If, am I really a son of God through Jesus Christ? Anybody else have those ponderings, those wonderings? St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a gift. The Spirit doesn't just teach us and then boot us out of the nest. The Spirit resides within us to bear witness with our hearts, our souls, and our minds, the core of our very being, of who we are because of His objective work in the application of the crucifixion and resurrection. We are children of God, not because we've earned it, but because God has given us birth from above. So it is, the Spirit makes children of God through the application of Christ's finished work, and He continues to make believers aware of their position as children. What a mighty God we serve. What a kindness of God. We don't have to guess. Finally, the teaching work of the Holy Spirit is about transformation of character. In this, the Holy Spirit teaches those who love Jesus and what Jesus desires for them and their lives. This past week, as I was working on this sermon, I, I couldn't help but think of the greatest southern rock band ever in, in all of history, Leonard Skinner. Am I wrong? Leonard Skinner has got to be better than any other southern rock band. Oh, well, y'all we, can be wrong. Y'all can be wrong. <laughs> And I think that Lin I personally think that Leonard Skinner's greatest song is not Freebird. While Freebird is fun to obnoxiously shout at a live musical event, Leonard Skinner's greatest song is actually Simple Man. Now I'm gonna come back to the Holy Spirit. Bear with me, please. <laughs> Someone who could actually sing may perhaps sing a little bit of Simple Man to you. I will have to recite the lyrics. But the song tells the story of a mama telling her son her desires for his life. And in it, she laid out the way of life that he should live as she called him to be a simple man. Oh, take your time. Don't live too fast. Troubles will come and they will pass. You'll find a woman and you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there is someone up above. Forget your lust for the rich man's gold. 
All that you need is in your soul. And you can do this, oh baby, if you try. All that I want for you, my son, is to be satisfied. Boy, don't you worry. You'll find yourself. Follow your heart and nothing else. And you can do this, oh baby, if you try. All I want for you is to be satisfied. The one thing that mama couldn't give was the one thing the boy needed. The ability to fulfill that which she declared was desirable. She declared that he should live in a particular way, valuing particular things and forsaking others. She declared to him that if he just tried hard enough, he could do it. If he just followed his heart and tried hard enough, he could be a simple man and he could be satisfied in himself. All he needed was his own heart and his own soul. He could find the true meaning of himself. That's a bunch of hippy-dippy baloney and a lie out of hell. It makes for a great southern rock song, but it's not theology to live by. We, all that we need isn't in our own soul. Following our hearts and nothing else ends in chaos because it ends with sin, brokenness, and idolatry. My best efforts don't affect lasting change. Mama could tell her son how to live, but she could not empower the life that she sought for her. That's the exact opposite of the Holy Spirit. As the life of the Trinity comes to bear upon any and all who believe in Jesus, as the second paraclete comes and teaches, he also empowers those who believe to be and to live differently, to be and live according to the desires of Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus doesn't end with the forgiveness of sin. That's the beginning. It includes the beauty of God's work to transform those who believe, to call us in to be sons and daughters of God, conformed, transformed into the very image of Christ. So St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Fred Sanders says this, the Holy Spirit forms believers into sons because his work is based on the completed work of Christ the Son. The Spirit forms believers into sons because he always works toward that perfect sonship he knows to belong to Christ. And in the united work of the Holy Trinity to continue the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes and teaches believers, leading us into perfect sonship. What a kind God we serve. The Spirit comes in this triune act within salvation as the second paraclete continuing the work of Jesus in the making and forming of disciples. It is the Spirit who makes a person a Christian. It is the presence of the Spirit and His work that is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It was true in the Bible. It has been true throughout church history. It is true today. It will be true tomorrow. And indulge me as we come to a conclusion this morning to end with a very personal question for you. Where are you regarding the Holy Spirit? Perhaps this morning you feel an internal prodding or a provoking of the Holy Spirit for the very first time. Perhaps today you're feeling a poking and a prodding, a conviction of sin and a call to repentance, to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps today you've been following after Jesus for quite some time, but you're feeling again the conviction, and, uh, conviction of sin and the need to repent. Perhaps today you're feeling encouraged and you're called to join in praise. 
Perhaps today you're lacking the peace that comes with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we're fearful. We have this day, as we have every Sunday, a wonderful opportunity to respond to the great and glorious triune God, to respond to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have an opportunity to respond and to receive from this united act of the Holy Trinity in the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. All you have to do, Jesus tells us, is ask. So this morning as we sing songs of worship and praise, this morning as we worship in song, as we stand together, I want to invite you. Is the Holy Spirit calling you to respond to Him? Father Ethan and I will be up here to to pray with you if you'd like. I know that Jeff Cressy and Tommy Taylor would form another team for us over here on this side of the, the worship space. If you are being called by the Holy Spirit to respond in one way or the other, do it. Do not leave here not asking. Come and receive. Come and receive the work of the Spirit as you are formed into the very image of Christ. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Thank you.